Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Why does he keep going into our closet? Why do you keep going into our closet? <laughs> to get my clothes, but that's not why he goes in there. Of course not. He's twice your size. Your clothes would never fit him. Conversations about Collaboration, Episode 76. Simo Stolzoff joins me to talk about his new book, The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. We discuss unions, Kickstarter, trust, and a whole lot more. Let's get it on. Simo, where does this pod find you? I am in San Francisco, California. Tech Center, home of the imbalanced work environment, right? It's true. Yeah, I grew up in San Francisco, too. And so in some ways, this is been imbued in my uh, upbringing since I was a young kid. I find it fascinating as someone who's spent some time in the Valley and talked to a lot of startup owners over the year that it's almost this badge of honor if you work at a startup that you live it and breathe it. And your corporate or your old school, if you want to leave at six to see your kid or you know just take a break. Yeah, I, mean, I do feel like the culture is changing around that, especially with younger generations and Gen Z. I think there's a certain thing in the water that it's a disillusionment with sort of that go above and beyond lifestyle. And I think that's where a lot of these trends around quiet quitting or lying flat in China. And in Japan, there's a movement of workers who are foregoing promotions. They call themselves the Hodo Hodo Zuku. And ah. the idea is just to be able to dedicate more of your time and your energy to your life outside of work. And so, I mean, I think the sort of pendulum swings both ways and I'm sympathetic to both sides about the the hard work and time it takes to build new things and bring them into the world, but also the understanding that work is part of who we are and part of our life and not the entirety of it. I didn't know about that in Japan. It seems like from at least my understanding that it's one of the few cultures that routinely work harder than Americans. Yeah, I mean... I think a lot of that is born out of this sort of salary man culture that um, was born of these large corporations and especially in sort of the late 20th century, the ascendancy of the Japanese economy. But as the economy started to flatline in, in the 90s, especially the promise of being able to sort of work for one company for your entire life started to break down. I think a lot of workers who had once dedicated their entire lives to one corporation or one company um, are starting to see that relationship more transactionally, maybe more like a means to an end as opposed to an end in and of itself. And so I think with young people and with this kind of new generation of a, a globalized world, some of that that loyalty and that dedication to a single employer is starting to break down in Japan and also other places in the world too. If there's ever been a need for a reminder that it is a transactional relationship, I think the recent layoffs at Meta, Google, Amazon, um, I think Snap, uh, some of the other tech companies are a reminder of that. And I'm fascinated in your book because you definitely did your research, but you also go deep into the individual stories. And I want to start with um, Ryan Burge. Uh, for people who haven't read the book, can you talk a little bit about his situation? Yeah, Ryan Borge is a fascinating guy. So he is a social scientist. He, his background is in political science and, and trends and religion. 
And so he's been chronicling for the majority of his career as an academic at this university where he teaches in, in Southern Illinois, uh, trends in, in modern religion. So how religiosity has been showing up in American society over time. And as you might imagine, religion across the board is declining. Participation in, in all the major religions um, is at its lowest rate of all time. And in particular, this one group that is affectionately dubbed the nuns for people that don't associate with any sort of organized religion. It's sort of a catch-all term that talks about you know, agnostic and atheists and people that believe in nothing in particular is now the largest quote-unquote religious group in America. So there are as many people who do not affiliate with religion as evangelicals or mainline Protestants or some of the other biggest religious groups out there now accounts for almost one in three Americans. And so Ryan has been tracing these trends over time. But what makes the story really interesting is in addition to being a professor and an academic, he's also a pastor. And so in his small town in Southern Illinois, he is the, the pastor up there on Sundays, and he can see these sort of trends that he's chronicling from an academic perspective borne out in real time as the number of people in the pews have declined in the last particularly decade or two. And it makes you wonder if many people need to fill that void with something, and it could be a hobby, um, but many times it's, it's work. Which totally. is, you know, you could say that's good that you're trying to advance your career, but you can also wonder if it's healthy. I mean, I, th I think if I remember correctly, reading an advanced copy of the book, there, there's study that studies that forget, suggest, prove that at a certain point, not only are you less productive, uh, you're actually unproductive. Yeah, there's been a lot of research in terms of the relationship between time spent working and productivity. And, you know, there isn't a linear relationship above a certain point. Obviously, in order to get that work done, you have to spend time working. But above certain thresholds, specifically around 55 hours a week, it starts to have diminishing returns over time. And to the point about, you know, religion, yes, as the breakdown of organized religions, but also community and social groups more broadly um, over the past 50 to, to 70 years, something needs to come fill its place. You know, the need for community and purpose and meaning and identity, those things persist. And part of what I trace in the book is how work has come to fill that void that maybe, you know, the, the Moose Club or your local church once fulfilled in your life. Um, and and specifically, you know, in, in the last few years, we've seen how work is this kind of false idol, you know, when we expect it to be not only a paycheck, but also your source of identity and meaning and purpose and self-actualization, that is an expectation and a burden that our jobs are not necessarily designed to bear. And it can lead to a lot of disappointment. It can lead to crises of identity um, and a lot of deleterious outcomes. That's a great segue into Taylor Moore and Kickstarter and this notion of work is your identity. It could also be part of your family, but I certainly fight with my family. <laughs> yeah. yeah talk, so talk a little bit about him. Yeah. So in, in one of the chapters of the book, I chronicle the union drive that um, led to Kickstarter becoming one of the first ever tech companies in the world to be unionized. 
And I think it's a illustrative example because in many ways, Kickstarter, especially in its early years, was a really great place to work. It was the type of place that you might imagine being sort of this paradigm of a tech open office plan where there are beers after work and coworkers are genuinely friends with each other. The company was a public benefit corporation and even in its its bylaws, it had uh, signified that it wanted to stand for something more than just pure profit and had this social mission of being able to elevate creators and artists to be able to do what they wanted to do and do what they loved. And then this union drive began among employees who wanted to codify some workplace protections for themselves and for future Kickstarter employees. And there was sort of a, a, a change of of tune from the, the management who started to partake in what employees told me were sort of union busting like activities and trying to do everything in their power to make sure this union did not come to fruition. And so I think, you know, the reason why I chose to profile Taylor and this chapter in particular is that I don't think the sort of result of workplaces being toxic or being places that don't care about their employees is often the intention of any individual. I don't think there are sort of malicious managers out there that say, how can we suck the marrow out of every minute of our workers and how can we push them to the brink of burnout? But bosses twisting their mustaches. Exactly. You know, but I think the conditions of the world in which we live, this combination of the push to always grow, this you know, sort of hyper-capitalistic society where shareholder value is often elevated above all else, creates the need for protections. And so what I advocate for in the book is that you know there's nothing wrong with doing what you love or looking to work as a source of meaning or purpose or identity in your life. But when that love becomes a stand-in for things like fair play or fair benefits or fair protections, that's when it becomes problematic. We still need to create workplaces where workers have a voice and workers are treated fairly and workers can earn a living. And when sort of love and meaning and the rhetoric around treating work as more than labor starts to obfuscate the real purpose of a job, which is to make enough money in order to live your life, that's when problems start to occur. Yeah. I remember when I was reading the book, I thought about a previous episode of my little pod and a guy named Scott Beeson wrote a book called The Whole Person Workplace. And the basic premise was that you should be able to bring your whole self to work. And this pod took place during the pandemic. And if people were working from home, there may be a poster in the background or their cat or their, you could hear their baby crying. Um, I had really mixed feelings about it because, yeah, that sounds great ideally, but I think it was Basecamp was one of the companies that said, look, we just don't talk about politics because it's only a matter of time before you know, things get ugly really quickly. And we want to avoid that because specifically, and I think they've said their founders, uh, DHH and Jason Fried, said flat out, you know, we don't keep track, but we want you to work around 40 hours a week because work is just one part of your life. If you bring your entire self to work, and that includes your political beliefs, 
um, you know, unless you have a very homogenous population, um, things are going to get ugly. Totally. Yeah, it's been a very contentious topic, especially in the last few years. And there's other companies that have taken similar stands, like Coinbase, for example. And it's interesting. I mean, I think Basecamp was one of the early examples of companies that were really progressive in the way they thought about compensation and benefits and the way they respected their employees' lives outside of the office. One of the anecdotes I remember, you know, I used to be a labor reporter and covered companies like Basecamp. And they, instead of having sort of in-office meals, they would pay for CSA boxes for their employees. And the idea being, you know, like, you don't have to eat your meals here, but we want to support you to be able to, you know, eat healthily and and spend time with your family. And so they would, you know, send their employees home with food, which I thought was a, a great example. They also have progressive policies around vacation and, and time off, et cetera. And the question about sort of the the bringing your whole self to work thing can be tricky. You know, I mean, I think in general, my view is that a company should not dictate what part of themselves, what part of their employees have to come to the office. And so things like social events or things that are extracurricular, there should be uh, expectation that if you have, say, young kids at home, an event like that doesn't have to be mandatory. Or, you know, the primary purpose is this sort of transactional relationship where workers are giving their time and labor in exchange for money. And I think the more transactional we can be about that, the better. You know, as you pointed out, work places and and management already treat employees transactionally. You know, they hire employees when they add value to the firm, they let employees go when they don't. And I think that employees or workers would benefit from having a similar approach about what they're willing to give, what is the sort of contractual obligation that they have to do good work, to be a good team member, to be collaborative, but then where do you draw the line? Where are those boundaries right. where work ends and your life begins? As you're talking, I'm thinking about the iconic scene in office space about um, Jennifer Anderson only wears a certain number of pieces of flair and her manager calls her out for just doing the absolute minimum. And I think about certain positions that I've had in which in theory, I would agree with you, right? I'm here to do X, I did X, what's the problem? But if one of your colleagues did you know, 1.2x, then that person was more likely to get the promotion or the raise or the better rating or all the above. Um, are we kind of hardwired to compete with our colleagues? And is it management's responsibility to say, look, everyone should chill the hell out because you're just kind of racing to, in order to get to the top, it's almost like you're racing to the bottom. I mean, it, so many people now, it's amazing. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, I'm on vacation, but I'll check email. I just, well, you're really not 100% on vacation then, right? But I understand why people do it because if we get 125 emails a day and we don't check email for a week, never mind two, and you come back, you've got 625 messages and they keep coming, right? I totally get how if you're taking a week off, let's say it's Thursday, you're thinking, Jesus Christ, I've got 500 messages in my, you know, I so what's, I guess, what's management's role in that? Or do we need them to kind of protect us from ourselves and they they not have an incentive to really do that because if we're working harder, we're making them more money? Yeah, my colleague and mentor, Anne Helen Peterson, has this great framework about the difference between boundaries and guardrails. 
And I think the problem with personal boundaries or personally imposed boundaries is that they inevitably break, even if you have the intention to not work on a Saturday, for example, perhaps your fear of getting laid off or your fear of not getting the the quarterly earnings report done in time might seep into all of your unoccupied moments like a gas if you think about a boundary, a boundary might be sort of like the the dotted line on the freeway where it, like it exists, but you're able to pass it. And as an alternative, she offers what she calls guardrails. You know, guardrails, you imagine on the side of a highway, they're structural, they'll put, they're put in at the systemic level and they can't be crossed. And I think that's one thing that companies can really do a better job of is structurally protecting their employees' time off, which means making perhaps mandatory minimum vacations or creating the structures in place for employees to be able to truly be off the clock. At a more base level, it's hiring enough employees to get the work done so there isn't an undue burden on any individual. So that's sort of at the company level. I also think there are structural protections that we would benefit from at the government level or at the policy level. You know, I think especially in America, part of the reason why work is so stressful and why our relationships to work are often so fraught is that the consequences of losing our jobs is so dire when healthcare is tied to employment for the majority of people, when so much of what we talk about with work and dignity in this country is tied to paid full-time W-2 employment. It's not just about your desire or your intention to work less. It's about your survival. And so I think that's where we could really use sort of a higher level air cover from government in order to decouple survival from employment to make sure that people are treated with dignity and respect and support regardless of whether their work or labor comes in the form of raising small children at home or caring for their elderly parents or they're a part-time or freelance worker or they have a corporate W-2 job. It's it's just fascinating stuff to me because I remember studying this in grad school and I think about what companies get away with and sometimes it's legal, sometimes maybe not as much. But I think about just in terms of the economics, how a company might, let's say a university might staff its classes such that everyone, when let's say May comes and they, everyone goes away for the summer, everyone should be coming back. And they assume that everyone will. But if somebody doesn't for whatever reason then there's this domino effect, in which case, two weeks before you're supposed to teach a course, hey, can you teach one more? Or can you teach a different course? Um, It makes sense because it's logical. And I would agree, unless there is something compelling uh, from a higher level, then why wouldn't you do that? Unless, of course, the labor market doesn't let it. But it does seem like the pendulum is swinging back when you hear about Snap compelling people to come to the office four days a week. And I think Apple and some of the other companies are doing that. We can argue whether that's right or wrong, but you couldn't get away with that you know, six months after the pandemic because we had historically uh, an historically tight labor market. So if you did that, people would just up and quit. Totally. Yeah, I think this comes back to giving workers more of a voice. 
And, you know, I think companies are entitled to make policies that work for them. I think there's kind of different strokes for different folks. But what is an imperative is that workers or employees have a seat at the table in some of these discussions. I'm really inspired by countries like Germany that uh, require a, a worker voice on the board of the company or just different ways for these decisions that affect everyone not to be the sort of unilateral decisions of a few C-suite members in a room, but are actually part of a consensus decision-making process that is reflective of the company as a whole. I remember studying Saturn, which I think was a subsidiary of GM in grad school a million years ago. And I actually owned two Saturns because I just believed in what they were doing. Um, I don't think that it's around anymore, but I think that was one of the first American auto companies to basically give workers more of a voice um, because I, I agree with you. And as someone who worked in a you know, in a red state and had very little say over the day-to-day actions of his job, it was very frustrating. Um, but I totally get why an employer wouldn't allow that because why would you introduce that extra friction? I get why in the my understanding of the NLRA is that companies don't have to recognize a union. And if you go to Canada, if you go to Europe, my understanding is that the labor laws are a lot more employee friendly. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an interesting sort of Stockholm syndrome to a certain extent as well among employees. I think one of the most interesting details of the Kickstarter chapter and and the union drive was that some of the rank and file employees, some of the employees that might themselves benefit from being part of a union were against unions because they felt that it was the appropriation of a tool that is meant for front line or blue collar workers and they felt you know that it wouldn't ultimately benefit them or or the company that they were working for and i think that's the result of many many years of the united states becoming a more and more individualistic society and now there's social media with so many different examples of both sort of the CEO worship and kind of hustle culture, as well as the individual drive to just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps or be able to start a side hustle or figure out how to make money on your own. And what we lose as part of that is that collectivist ethos, is the understanding that we are as workers all in this together. And there is a real discrepancy of power between management and workers. And there are, you know, different levers like unions that can rebalance that power. Well, we see what Musk is doing with uh, Twitter, whether that's still around by the time this airs, who knows? Um, I think it's actually a question. But uh, if I remember correctly, you also mentioned the hustle culture at um, Uber under Travis Kalanick. I mean, yeah. there's this idolatry of the CEO. And, and to be fair, and, and I don't agree with Musk, with what's doing, I think he's insane. But when he talks about being extremely hardcore, to use his words, I mean, he is sleeping at the office. I'm not saying that other people should do that. But that's a lot different than saying you need to sleep at the office while I'm off gallivanting on my $100 million yacht or whatever. Totally. And, and you know, I think that provides attention. I think they're is a reason why so much innovation has come out of the United States in, in the past few decades. 
it is partially a result of some of our you know taxation structures that make the upside of succeeding in business so much higher than some other places in the world it's a result of the sort of entrepreneurial spirit you know i talk about in the book how capitalism and the protestant work ethic are sort of the two strands that entwine to form our country's dna but I think there's also an alternative. There are different ways to be able to earn a living, to innovate, to grow. And as I mentioned earlier, there isn't a direct relationship between time spent and the productivity of your of your workforce. Um, you know, if you look at sort of the historical trends in the 1970s, the average American and the average German and the average Frenchman you know, even to a certain extent, the average Japanese worker worked around the same amount of hours. Yep. And in the late 70s, this weird split started to happen. You know, obviously, historically, and through many different civilizations, the more wealth you have as an individual or as a country, the fewer hours that you typically work frankly, because you can afford not to. But in the mid-1970s, this strange trend occurred where even as the United States continued to grow its wealth, its number of working hours for the average worker started to flatline and in a lot of different slices actually increase, especially among sort of college-educated men. And the question is, why? Why are workers that can afford to work less instead of trading their wealth for more free time, which has been sort of the trend in history, they're in fact trading their wealth for more work. Um, and that's one of the great ironies of our, our modern society. Good stuff. Sibo, I'll get you out here on this. What book are you currently reading? I'm reading um, a book of fiction. Um, called Fleischman is in Trouble. You might know it because they recently made Oh, it this into... is the FX thing with Jesse Eisenberg? Exactly, yeah. Okay, okay. Hulu series. But it's originally a book of fiction by by Taffy. I, I forget exactly her last name. I think it's Brodesser Ackner. Um, but she's one of the great living journalists, especially in the art of the profile of sort of capturing a person's essence. And as someone who, you know, my background is in journalism, I love writing about individuals and, and tracing their stories. Fundamentally, the book, The Good Enough Job, is the character arc of nine different workers in nine different industries. I have really been enjoying reading this book because it shows just how the same observation skills and the same ability to understand human motion that might lead to a really compelling piece of narrative nonfiction can also help world build and create really compelling characters that feel real in the world of fiction. So highly recommend the book, even if you've seen the show um, and hope you check out my book as well. It's called The Good Enough Job. Um, and it's currently the number one work-life balance book on Amazon. Um, I'm not sure how much longer that's going to last for, but your order would really help. And so you can search for The Good Enough Job anywhere that you get your books. And thank you so much for having me on the pod, Phil. Yeah, I'll link to it. Thanks a lot. Simo, I enjoyed it. Sounds good. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, 
patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.